Hello, everybody. This is Parsha Parsha Ve'era, and the Parsha begins with Hakadosh Baruch giving Moshe Rabbeinu Musar, saying how he doesn't measure up to the Aves Hakadoshim, who, when they had struggles in their lives, they still had faith in Hakadosh Baruch And Moshe Rabbeinu is coming and he's complaining to Hashem, saying, "Lama Hari Isa, why have you been bad to this nation?" And the question that all the Mefarshim really want to know is that why is Moshe Rabbeinu being chastised for doing this? The Gemara tells us even in Sanhedrin Kufid Aleph from Abayz. That Moshe was ultimately punished to the point where he was only able to see this redemption, redemption from, from Mitzrayim, but he was not able to see the ultimate Geula when Chayisal came into Eretz Yisrael. And seemingly, Moshe was doing something very different than the Avais. The Avais, when they had troubles, those personal troubles, these were things that they were personal challenges, and they were able to accept that Gash Baruch Hu's judgment in pure faith. Moshe Rabbeinu over here, he's the leader of Chayisal. And the leaders of Klaishra always have to speak up for Klaishra. They always have to daven on their behalf. They always have to beg Akash Baruch to forgive Klaishra. So seemingly, Moshe Rabbeinu is doing nothing wrong. Why is Akash Baruch punishing Moshe Rabbeinu for coming and saying, Lama Hariyasa? And the Sefer Darak Musa explains that that's 100% correct, that Klaishra's leaders have always stuck up for Klaishra, daven on behalf of Klaishra. But there's a difference. Moshe Rabbeinu is being punished over here specifically for the language that he chose to say, Lama Hariyasa. Why have you done bad? Why have you done evil? That, says the Daraki Muster, is why Kosh Baruch Hu is, so to speak, upset at Moshe Rabbeinu 4, because Moshe Rabbeinu is making a mistake that although there's definitely challenges, although there's definitely times when Klai Yisrael has to daven and ask for things to get better, but there's never anything evil, nothing bad ever comes out from Shemayim. There's, in this book, by Yaakov Kamenetsky, they write, Yaakov Kamenetsky was a rav, for many, many years in a little village in, Lit- in Lithuania called Stavian. And it was a very, very poor village, and they could not afford to support their rav. And Ryakovetsky's family basically suffered from extreme poverty for many, many, many years. And he kept trying to, to apply for positions in bigger cities to get a job as a rav. And many times he's a very talented person, and many times he got very close. And somehow, every time something seemed to have gone wrong, and there's always some new candidate came up at the last minute or something else went wrong, and he couldn't get a job as a rav anywhere else. And finally, there was this one position which came up, and he came there, and they loved him, everything went great, and sure enough, also, this last position fell through, and they gave it to somebody else. And Ibyakov, at that point, the situation was that extreme that he basically decided that he had to go get a job as a fundraiser for the Kailal, the Covenant Kailal, I believe. It was one of the Kailal, and he had to go to America to become a fundraiser because he couldn't support his family in Litta. And his wife, the night that he decided, you know, that he basically, that this position fell through and he decided he had to become a fundraiser, his wife stayed up the whole night crying bitter tears. She cried the whole night that her husband, who was a chash of a rub for many, many, many years, would now have to become a fundraiser and go to America. And she was very, very, very bitter about what was going on. And sure enough, Ryakovinetsky came to America as a fundraiser. And his first day on the job as a fundraiser, he came to one of the donors of this, of this kettle and he, he came to the guy and he said to him, you know, look, in the past, it's the paper said you gave, you know, whatever it was, X amount for the yeshiva, for the kailo, could you please match your contribution? And the guy says, look, you know, um, those numbers are incorrect. I, I could show you my receipts. And the guy went back, showed him his stubs, and he actually gave a couple hundred dollars less in the past year. And Yaakov realized that somebody had, um, someone in the office had cooked the books and tried to basically fool the fundraisers, fool, sorry, fool the donors to give more than they gave in the past. And Yaakov decided right then and there, he's quitting his job as a fundraiser, and he told the guy, look, um, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't know, and I, I'm no longer working for this for this kailo anymore. I'm no longer fundraising. 
and he quit his job without knowing what he was going to do. And Kashbar who worked it out that eventually some old friends of his from Sabarka, they got him a job as a Rav in Seattle first, and he got a job eventually as a Rav in Toronto. And he ended up managing to find a job as a Rav in Toronto for many years, and he was able to bring his family over to America, to, to, to Canada, and that's how they survived the war. And Iraq and used to always tell people that at, that night, when his wife was crying bitter, bitter tears, and they really felt like their whole world had gone dark, he couldn't tell and he couldn't know that Kosh Baruch Hu, meanwhile, was planning the, the, the survival of his whole entire family from Europe before, before, before World War II. And he said that this kind of, for him, was a big moment that showed him that he never understands what's going on. He never knows what the bigger picture is. And a person who has to trust a Kosh Baruch Hu, that whatever happens, it's never ra. It's never evil. It's never bad. Of course, a person has to daven. Of course, a person has to try to make a situation better. A person has to know that it's never ra. It's never evil. It's coming from Shemayim. It's always a bigger picture of what's going on. Later on in the parsha, when we get to the makas, by the first makah of makas dam, Moshe does the makah in front of Pari. And the pasuk says, "Va'yifen Pari, Pari turned, va'yavayalbeisa, and he went home. Ve'loishas libaygamlozeisa, and he didn't put his heart." about this as well, and ignored basically Makazdam. There's a fascinating Meshachachma. Meshachachma writes that what does it mean that Pari went home to his house and he ignored the Makkah? He says that although Makazdam existed throughout the entire land of Mitzrayim, it was in the rivers, it was in the houses, everywhere, there was one place in Egypt where there was no Makkah of Dam, and they had water, and that was in Pari's house. Pari was not afflicted with the Makkah of Dam inside his own house. And he says the reason behind this is because we know that the way that Egyptians managed to survive throughout Makazdam, although they had no water, is that if they purchased water from a Jewish person, then that water stayed water, it did not turn into blood. Says the Meshachachma, since Parai raised Moshe Rabbeinu in his home, and he took in this orphan, so not orphan, but basically this abandoned child, and he, so he paid for his education, he raised him like he raised all other princes, that merit, that money that he spent, so to speak, on raising Mitzrayim, that was his payment for his water during the Makkah of Dam. That's how he managed to have water during the Makkah of Dam. A fascinating insight from Meshachachma. In fact, he doesn't write a source, but in fact they found that the Meshachachma, what he says is actually in a Medrash called Medrash Hagadol, a lesser known Medrash. But just the interesting idea of how much a Baruch Hu takes into account everything somebody does. Even though you have someone as wicked as Parai, and as, so to speak, as bad as he is, but Baruch never, so to speak, lets anything go behind. And the merits that he did in taking care of Meshachachim stood for him when he needed them. The Gemara tells us that Hanani Mishal Azariah, the three great tzaddikim who refused to bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar and were willing to get themselves thrown into a fiery furnace, the Gemara says, where did they get these, so to speak, motivation? Where did they get the idea to throw themselves into the fiery furnace. Where did they get that from? The Gemara says they made a Kalvachomer. They basically, they learned this from the Tzvardea. They said that the Tzvardea, they went and threw themselves into the fiery furnaces of the Egyptians. Like the Pasuk says that the, these frogs went in even into the ovens of the Egyptians. And they said, look, if the Tzvardea, if they who are not commanded to kid Hashem Shemayim and sanctifying Hashem's name, willing to give up their lives to go into the ovens, so too we should give up our own lives and throw ourselves into this furnace for the sake of Akash Baruch Hu. And all the Mepharshim want to understand the Gemara. The, seemingly, there is a, we all know there's an obligation for a Jew to give up his life, God forbid, if need be, if, if, if forced to serve a Vedazar. So why did the Hanani Roshav Azariah have to learn from the Tzvardaya? Seemingly, the halacha is clear that if someone's telling them they have to serve idol worship, they have to serve a Vedazar, 
they have to sacrifice their life. So the Ruach al brings a pshat based on a teisvis that what was going on by Nebuchadnezzar's statue was not bona fide of a desire. It was an andarta, it was an effigy. Nebuchadnezzar built himself a statue kind of to show that he was an extremely, extremely powerful person and it was an ego thing. It wasn't that he was saying he was a god. So, if so, why is there an obligation to give up your life altogether? So, Tysus explains that the idea is that although it was not bonafide of Adizara, if everybody in the world would give in to this, would bow down to it, then that would be a tremendous chil shem shemayin. That would be a tremendous, you know, chil um, because everyone's giving in to this crazy egomaniac's idea that he, he's kind of the biggest, most powerful person in the world. And somebody had to stand up for it and say that, no, you don't run the show, Akash Baruch who runs the world. So this is a unique situation, says Tesis. You have a, a thing which is not really Avay Dezara. There's no clear-cut obligation to give up your life for this. However, there is an obligation that somebody has to step forth and say that I'm going to protest this sorry, this 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 andarta of and somebody has to be willing to step up and take the heat for everybody else. So how do you do that? How do you know that that should be done? Says Khanani Mishazari, look at the frogs. There's many, many frogs. Each one can choose where he's gonna go. Some could say, I'm gonna go to the bed, some could say, I'm gonna go into the kitchen, right? And every frog is gonna volunteer to be the one to go to every other place except for in the oven. So which frog is gonna go into the oven? But yet, somebody has to go into the oven. Says Chanayim Shabazari, if there were frogs that were willing to go into the oven and say that although it's not clear that I have to be the one, but look, someone's got to do it, I'm going to step up. So if the frogs can do that, we could do that as well, says Chanayim Shabazari, and that's why they stepped up. And that's what the Gemara means, Chanayim Shabazari learned from the frogs. They learned that this idea that when sometimes there's something that somebody has to do, they stepped up and decided they're going to be the ones to go ahead and do it. And the Medrash points out that ultimately, the only frogs that actually survived the Makkah of Tzvardea, after the Makkah was over, all the other frogs died, the only ones that survived are the ones that went into the ovens. Because those ones, because they stepped forward and decided they're going to be the ones to make a Kiddush Hashem, because Baruch would give them special protection, and they survived, and they went forward. And that's something we can always kind of, for ourselves, take a lesson. There's many times in life when... Yes, somebody has to do something, but who said it has to be me? And everyone tends to shrink into the background, but if people are willing to take the initiative and say, I'm going to be the one stepping forward, then there's Zeichah, they merit a special Tziat Deshmaya and a special Bracha Merkaj Baruch Later in the parsha, we have the Makkah of Dever, and the parsha says that after the Makkah of Dever, all the Egyptian cattle died, and none of the Jewish cattle died, and the Pazak says, Not one died. And the Medrash tells us that, the Malbim, sorry, explains, the Malbim says that actually there was one Jewish person whose animals died. And he says this was the, the fellow later on who was known as the Mekalel. He was a son of a Jewish mother and an, an Egyptian father. He was killed later in the Midbar because he cursed Hashem's name. And his animals died. And the Malbim explains that because since before Matan Torah, before the Torah was given, the halacha was that by non-Jews, the, the lineage goes after the father. And therefore, since his father was Egyptian, he had the halacha of a mitzri. And therefore, his cattle died under the plague of Dever. And 
the Malam explains that what I, the reason why Hashem did this was because this is what enabled Parai to see the Makah of Dever and say, look, even one, uh, it's, it's not really a hand of God. There was a Jew, as far as he understood, there was a Jew whose cattle died as well. And therefore, he was able to ignore that Makah and move forward. The Malam tells us that there's a very, very important lesson that even when HaKadosh Baruch Hu makes open miracles, HaKadosh Baruch Hu's making maif and isim, he's showing his hand completely. There's always going to be room. HaKadosh Baruch Hu will always leave a little bit of room for those who want to avoid it, for those who want to choose to go the other way. They'll always have something to pick on and say, oh, you see? Oh, I told you it was a scam. And that's why HaKadosh Baruch Hu left that this one person, his animals should die just so Parish should have that way out to continue making the mistakes that he makes and to keep living the way that he lived and not do take the not take the lesson to do tshuva. So I end off with one last vart. The end of the parasha, the parasha tells us that Moshe Rabbeinu, Pari asks him to go and to daven the bird to stop, and Moshe Rabbeinu says, okay, I'll go out. And as Moshe Rabbeinu is telling him about how he's going to go out and daven to Hashem to stop the bird, he mentions that the pishta and the se'ira, the flax and the barley, were destroyed by the barab. Ki ha-se'ira aviva pishta givel, because they were ripened and they were hard and they were ready. They were, they were kind of, they were fully grown. Whereas the chita and the kusemes, the wheat and the spelt, were, I believe, spelt or rye, I don't remember exactly. Loinuku did not get struck. Ki because they were soft. So in his pirushalatera, says that why was Meshavarim mentioning this fact of power? Why did Meshavarim feel it was important for power to know which grains had been destroyed by the bar and which grains had not? And he says that Meshavarim is telling power a message. He says, power, you know, some of the grains broke and were destroyed by the bar and some not. The ones that were broken were the ones that were very stiff. They were fully grown and they were completely ripe and therefore they couldn't take the bar and the bar cracked them and snapped them and they were destroyed. Whereas the grains that were not fully ripe, the ones that were still soft and flexible, when they got hit, by the barad, kind of they bent, they, they went down, and then once the barad melted, they went back to normal. And you too, Pari, says Moshe Rabbeinu, if you could just humble yourself, if you could lower yourself, you could be more flexible, then after Gosh Baruch Hu hit you, you can bounce back up and do tshuva and come back to yourself. But if you're going to stay stiff, and you're going to stay stuck in your ways, and you're going to insist on being right, then you're going to break. Gosh Baruch is going to have to destroy you. Someone told me recently an idea said by the Y.Y. Jacobson, the name of the Tzemach Tzedek, one of the earlier Baba Terebas, said, why is it that when you have children, children can be very, they can be very, very angry. You can get into a big fight with a kid. He can be very upset, throw a massive tantrum. But ultimately, you give him a candy, you, you, you bribe him, and all of a sudden, the kid's happy, everything's back to normal. An adult, you can offer him this, you can offer him that, but he'll be holding a grudge and angry, and he'll refuse to make peace for years and years and years and years. What's the difference? Why do kids get over it so quick and just take the candy and adults hold grudges even though it makes them sad? And he said a very deep point. He said the children, they rather be happy than be right. And they'll buy themselves whatever you give. They make them happy, they're good to go. Adults, they rather be right than be happy. And it's something we can always take to heart. A lot of times in life, if we could just decide, look, let's just be happy. And who's right? You're right. I'm right. Who's right? It doesn't make a difference. Just be soft, be flexible, and you'll be much, much happier, which all have a wonderful Shabbos.